Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. We're going to jump right into the show this week since I just finished the interview and it's one of my favorite ever. It's with Stanley Kurtz, who wrote a series of columns in the National Review about the divestment from fossil fuels movement, including its leader, Bill McKibben, who many of you are familiar with, and also uh, particularly about that movement on college campuses and how that movement conducts itself, what this means about the state of education, and especially important, what we can do about it. So listen all the way through, particularly at the end, he makes some really important points uh, that that really shed a lot, a lot of light on things for me, and hopefully it will for you too. So I will talk to you on the other side. Our hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're now joined by Stanley Kurtz. Stanley, welcome to Power Hour. Alex, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. So you and I have quite a bit of com- in common in terms of our research interests over the last year. You've, uh, I mean, m- most recently, uh, at least in, in what we've seen, you've, you know, you wrote about the controversy at Vassar that I was uh, somewhat involved in. Uh, but more broadly, you've been interested in the divestment movement, uh, including the leader, Bill McKibben, uh, for a while. What got you interested in that movement? Well, Alex, it's a, it's a funny story. Uh, I hadn't really uh, known anything about the divestment movement, and uh, I was focused instead on one of President Obama's more disturbing and uh, less known initiatives. Uh, this is called the Common Core. Very few people understand that the federal government is in the process of nationalizing this uh, K-12 through school curriculum around the country uh, through something called the Common Core. And I happened to be researching this topic, and I noticed that um, as part of these changes uh, related to the Common Core, uh, newspaper stories were increasingly being assigned to students instead of classic literature. So I started looking at some of these newspaper stories to see if there was a political bias. And sure enough, I found a story about the fossil fuel divestment movement. It was a New York Times story, and it was being uh, pushed in a special section of the New York Times uh, website devoted to the Common Core, uh, having K through 12 students read different parts of the news, and I, and I, my jaw really dropped when I read this article, because it really was very biased. It was eff- effectively an advertisement for the divestment campaign, and this was going out to K through 12 students around the country. So at first, I was going to write about the uh, the bias of um, Obama's Common Core program, but uh, the more I read this article about the divestment movement on uh, college campuses, uh, the more amazed I became. And I quickly realized uh, that another problem that was of great interest to me, which is the declining faith of young people in our free enterprise system, was really exemplified by this whole divestment movement. And I saw that uh, with the popularity of the divestment movement on campus, and uh, now with the New York Times pushing it onto K through 12 uh, students through Obama's Common Core, uh, that the basis was being laid to further undercut uh, the confidence of America's young people in, in America's economic system. And so that's what really got me exploring this whole movement. I find the term core really interesting in this context because I mean, what you have is sort of a very derivative type of movement, I mean, a derivative form of anti-capitalism that pertains to fossil fuels. And, and I would be surprised if 10% of the recipients of what amounts to propaganda in this case, because they don't know anything, even know what fossil fuels are. Well, that's absolutely right, Alex. I mean, that's why, you, you know, campuses need someone like you to go up there and explain what's going on with fossil fuels. What I've found in studying the divestment movement, the fossil fuel divestment movement is 
is almost uniform ignorance about the ostensible topic uh, of divestment, which is fossil fuels, and that's of course the balloon that you puncture when you go to talk. But the but the unfortunate fact of the matter is that uh, students have been uh, hoodwinked by this movement uh, uh, on the basis of ignorance, and it's important. It shouldn't be laughed off. And I think there's a tendency among conservatives when they hear about this fossil fuel divestment movement. They, they laugh and they say, well, you know, what a waste of time and this is absurd. First thing they point out is it won't work because as soon as uh, college endowments sell off their fossil fuel stocks, uh, other people will snap them up. And so it won't really hurt the fossil fuel companies at all. Now, there's a lot of truth to that, but the error here that conservatives make is that they think, well, the whole thing is a waste of time, doesn't mean anything. But when you look at the fossil fuel divestment movement, uh, you say uh, you'd be surprised if 10% of the people really understood anything about what fossil fuels are. That's right, but that means that 90% of students are being persuaded that oil companies are the incarnation of evil, and that really just stands in their mind for the evil of the capitalist system as a whole. And so uh, I think people on the right need to take this movement seriously. Uh, because if we lose the younger generation, if we lose their faith in our economic system, then the country will suffer, even if the specific goal of the divestment movement isn't likely to have much effect on fossil fuels. If this movement wins the mind of our young people, and right now they are winning, then this country is in serious trouble. Yeah, and it's worth pausing on this issue of goals, which which you mentioned in your series of articles, and in, in which McKibben is completely explicit about in his work, including the the sensational or sensation, I should say, Rolling Stone article last year, where he says that the whole purpose of this is to make them public enemy number one. At no point does he say, or does I mean he might imply it, but he won't. He's not stupid enough to say directly that. Oh, if Harvard just sells its shares of Exxon, assuming they have any, then uh, you know, then Exxon is going going to go broke. The point is to use it as a means of demonization, and it's a it's a f- explicitly a first step, and I think it's it's a very strategic first step because it takes ignorant people, promises them moral superiority if they take an action, and the action is extremely low effort. All they have to say is. We want these funds, which we know nothing about, to divest from these companies, which we know nothing about, uh, except that they're evil. So could you comment on this as, a, as part of a sequence rather than as an end in itself? Absolutely, Alex. And I, uh, I agree with you that McKibben is open about his desire to demonize the oil companies. And I think he, he is smart about his long-term strategy. <clears throat> it's true, and McKibben knows it's true that uh, the simple act of uh, divesting from fossil fuel stocks, even if it were to occur, uh, would not immediately harm those companies. But McKibben understands that um, the real goal is to build a mass political movement uh, against fossil fuel. And if you want to build a movement, you need to create a demon, you need to give an action to people to try to push like divestment. And I think McKibben is onto something in the sense that if he were to build a massive popular movement with fossil fuels picked out as the enemy, then it would increase the prospects for uh, the political prospects for uh, you know a punitive carbon tax that would harm economic growth, but would uh, help McKibben to achieve his goal. I don't think they're going to get close to really doing that. But, you know, McKibben's actual strategy makes more sense than his long-term strategy of building a political movement out of the idea of demonizing oil companies makes at least more sense than, than uh, the idea that actually divesting from fossil fuels will cause economic harm to these companies. So several issues come to mind. One is, is something I've been thinking about for about the last six months when a I talked to one of the best marketers in the world, and I was curious what he thought about the green movement's marketing. And since I'm trying to start a counter-movement, a positive alternative to uh, environmentalism, I was really interested. And one thing he he said that, that surprised me but has stuck with me ever since was that he thinks that the influence of this movement is overrated in the sense of P- 
people don't really love it at the core and are not passionate about it in the way that media would like us to believe. And it's and one experience I had with this, uh, I need to find the quote. Um, I'm trying to look it up, but um, the leader of the the Vassar um, campaign, Julian Hassan, he sent me an email because I asked him to sum up what happened, and he he wrote me a very nice email about how big an effect just this one event had, this one speech where they heard a view that they had never heard before, and then uh, the press around it and the students walking out. And from his account, he said there's really a debate and people are exploring the views. And, and while I would like to think that, oh, I'm just such a fantastic speaker, I think part of it is they've just never heard the viewpoint before and if it's presented as wow there's a positive alternative and some people really believe not just that these aren't evil but that the industry that produces them is good they're not so stuck in the opposite that there's no hope of of reaching them it doesn't it doesn't go but so deep but as long as it's as long as there's no opposition then it, then they can get all these votes so i'm curious what you think of that well, I agree with that, Alex. I think basically both sides of this argument are correct. That is to say, the students who believe in this movement are passionate about it. In fact, their whole point <clears throat> is to have something to feel passionate about. I think they're, I think many of these students are, um, they're not really focused on religion or traditional sources of values, and so they feel uh, their school isn't really giving them, other than its offices of sustainability, their schools don't really give them uh, common ideas, um, you know, uh, reverence for uh, America's uh, democratic traditions. Uh, that's that's um, out of fashion. Instead, you're supposed to focus on everyone's differences, and that leaves people without... A, anything in common to rally around. So I think students desperately want something that they can passionately believe in. And they have turned to uh, the fossil fuel divestment movement to fill in that gap. So I think the passion is honest, but I agree with you very much that it's a passion that is based on ignorance. It can only survive uh, if th this ridiculous stick figure image of evil fossil fuel companies is allowed to exist without contradiction. Now, that can happen on a super left-wing college campus uh, where the professors are all coming from one political direction and when there are even official offices of sustainability that, that all feed into this picture. But it's true that this, this whole perspective is vulnerable. If any serious person comes and challenges it, it immediately, uh, such as yourself, of course, it immediately becomes apparent that at minimum we have a serious debate here, that this is not a, you know, a sim simple issue of all good and all bad, that it's a much more complicated issue that, uh, you know, has to be debated uh, in an important way. And then it becomes hard to have this passion that you're fighting this horrific evil, uh, what Bill McKibben calls public enemy number one. So I think the passion is there and it's real, but I think it, it, it's a, a bit like a bubble that can be burst if we can only get through to them. Yeah, and particularly in my experience, it's the combination of having a clear opposition, but also a passionate opposition. That is, if you believe that these are the fuel of life, or I should say if you recognize that they're the, the fuel of life, you know, the fact that there are challenges with them doesn't diminish uh, the achievement that it represents and, and the gratitude one should feel toward the miners going to work every day so that, you know, so that, you know, I can use my iPhone or the, you know, the people drilling for oil so that I can take, you know, a vacation that I remember for the rest of my life. Uh, and I think that passion really diffuses the other side because they're not used to being stood up to by someone who really believes in something positive that's opposed to them. And if their belief is shallow, my experience is they become, and I don't mean this as an insult to all conservatives, but like conservatives, as in they say, oh, I'm not against all fossil fuels. I'm not against, you know, I just, we just need to restrict it a little. Whereas when they're unleashed and when there's no opposition, they're just very strident and, oh yeah, we need to get rid of the whole, you know, industry. Or as this guy I was debating from Sierra Club said something like that. Like he said, oil is a bad bet in every way. <laughs> Well, I think there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I absolutely agree that passionate uh, affirmation of the good, the great good that fossil fuels do uh, for all of us as individuals and for us as a society is a great way 
to burst that bubble. I also think just, you know, even if someone came in with a, a reasonable position that, you know, conceded a little bit to each side, it would still get through. I think every, I think there, every form of debate on this issue is helpful if it is at least, um, <laughs> if it conveys some part of the important truth of how important fossil fuels are. And I think a lot of what's going on here is that young people you know, do have, a, you know, young people have a lot of strengths. Uh, they, they, on the one hand, they don't take the world for granted and they're willing to see uh, things change. But the other side of that coin is that um, they don't really, uh, that they, they don't really see all the things that make the life they live possible. They take that for granted. And when they turn on the light, when they use their computers, when they do anything, all of us from morning till night are using fossil fuels and we just take it for granted. We just imagine that this is the way that life is. And I don't think, I don't think any Americans have full appreciation of that, but I think probably young people with all of their strengths have a little bit of a weakness on that score. And if they can be made to see how everything that they value about their own life uh, is in, in many ways dependent upon these fossil fuels, that their attitudes can be changed. But that really does take some effort of education. Well, speaking of education, I, I want to transition to that because you've done a lot of interesting research and I have a lot of, uh, just reading your work and thinking about it has, has raised a lot of questions in my mind. Uh, one is with the issue of, I forget the two people's names, but the, the most disturbing thing to me about the vast, I mean, the fact that they walked out uh, you know, I didn't even really, I didn't even really notice it more or less when it happened. And it is kind of a standard leftist thing, although it's, it's incredibly rude to do to someone. Uh, but what really, what really disturbed me much more were the conservative slash moderates who tried to pay the organizer to have me not come. And because it, it was really what they, if we talk about, it's so important to have a debate, they didn't want to see a debate and they were afraid of a debate how how common is this on college campuses i think it's very common to be afraid of a debate but i've never seen a particular documented incident you know worse than that one i mean <clears throat> sure it's bad when when people you know use you know nasty language and it's bad when they get up and walk out that's all really bad but in a way to have these students who were thoughtful people and who uh, had been the head of an organization whose job it was to give all perspectives a voice when even those students uh, are willing to pay money to stop someone from speaking. To me, that says there's a larger uh, breakdown on campus of these, these fundamental notions of free speech that we, we get going back to John Stuart Mill. I mean, John Stuart Mill who used to be uh, someone who we all knew, whether we actually had read his work or not, we, we took for granted the ideas that this great founder of liberalism propagated, the idea that we really need to have debate if society is going to make the right decision. We've got to hear from all sides. And even if someone makes a bad show of holding up their side, you learn something from that. Uh, and uh, people used to take all of that for granted. And I think in an earlier time, students would have been embarrassed at the idea of paying money to stop someone from speaking. It's so far to the opposite of what these classic liberal notions are. I mean, liberal in the sense of traditional liberal ideas that the American founders had, not, not contemporary liberalism, uh, which is a, a, a more narrow uh, meaning of the word liberal. And uh, so I think there's been a real erosion in that, uh, and I think it's coming from this new hard-left culture that the faculty and the administration uh, has brought to many of our college campuses, and I think students pick up on that. And again, the effort by McKibben and the fossil fuel divestment movement is to demonize fossil fuels. And so when I studied the fossil fuel divestment movement prior to the Vassar incident, it was clear to me that opponents were afraid to say anything good about fossil fuels, to in any way challenge the demonization of fossil fuels. All they could do 
would say, well, this might hurt our endowment. It's not good. It doesn't make economic sense for our particular university. You know, they weren't really grappling with the core arguments there. And they were afraid that if they did grapple with that, they'd be accused of being so-called deniers of, um, of uh, climate change and uh, defenders of evil corporations. And so I think the students who tried to pay money just to have you not come and speak were afraid of being ridiculed and demonized if they legitimated your argument. And that speaks to the power and success of this extremist fossil fuel divestment movement on campus. It can be challenged, but the fact that there had to be so much... uh, so much chaos and battle, even to get you to come and speak, you know, before we could break through to people and make them start thinking differently, shows uh, how how much hope there is, but also how much of a problem there is to begin with. The issue of debate is really interesting in the context of modern environmentalism, and particularly the viewpoint of, of catastrophic global warming, because the arguments about it are very rarely about demonstrating catastrophic global warming, explaining what it is, explaining how it would work, explaining how it, how human beings couldn't adapt to it. It has very little content to it in people's minds. The one thing that they are insistent on obsessing about is that there is no debate. To the point of it's not even clear what the issue is, whether it's global warming or catastrophic global warming, which are two radically different things. I wonder how common it's just really there's these websites like Desmog Blog and Skeptical Science, and their whole purpose is to just try to destroy the reputation of anyone. And, and these students had the same mentality where they weren't even interested in what I was saying. They said bizarre, just I mean, they even described me, I think, as screaming or something. That's just not even my style on a stage. That there's no YouTube video of me screaming at anyone. Um, it just was uncanny how their obsession was not how wrong I was and why, but that there is no debate, that that there's just one course of action and we should just obey. And their whole focus intellectually was no debate, no question, and that's it. Well, I think that's right, Alex, and I wish it, it, it was not as widespread as it is, but the fact is that this has now become the preferred technique uh, of political battle from the American left. Instead of taking conservative arguments seriously and sitting down trying to make sense and have a serious debate, there is a tendency to try to accuse uh, the conservative opponent of being, uh, or the libertarian opponent, of being uh, racist, sexist, or, you know, a denier. Uh, which, of course, has, uh, has a resonance with the idea of Holocaust denial. Uh, and um, the idea is if you, you know, you know, this fossil fuel divestment movement and the whole climate movement, I think, in, in many ways, and this is certainly not something that only I have said, but I think it's a kind of secular religion. Again, I think it's feeling, uh, filling a gap of uh, religious meaning for the people who are involved in it. And and to have it work that way, there have to be angels and devils. Uh, And so uh, the people who don't go along with the catastrophic claims of the global warming hypothesis are considered to be devils. And that delegitimates them and means you don't have to take their arguments seriously. It also means you can feel a deep satisfaction in fighting evil and upholding pure good. And so it it can't really fulfill its existential mission if it becomes uh, a thoughtful and detailed debate over public policy. That's really fascinating about the devil. And it it almost seems if you were to I mean, it has, I think it is religious in many ways. It's almost as if the only thing that they're trying to figure out is which which God to follow or which Bible to follow. And the whole debate is, this is the only one. There's nothing else to follow. And then you just obey. But, you know, then it's your job to follow it. It's not, there's no question of, let's think through each of these moral issues that, like each of the life issues that 
you know, religion addresses, let's talk about those and let's see, let's talk about philosophy, let's see what makes sense, let's see how things work out in practice. It's just, no, I want you to follow, like, I, the whole focus is on just getting you into a framework where you're ready to obey. Well, I, I think that's right, and I think that, you know, although this is a religion, it's not a very sophisticated or profound religion, but another bit of resonance with traditional religion here is, and you see this if you go to the websites of the people who are, and the Twitter feeds of the people who are uh, the leaders of the uh, fossil fuel divestment movement, of course, uh, you know, the world is about to end. The world is coming to an end, and all of the uh, political uh, little uh, tweets or um, blog posts that go up there are kind of interspersed with something that says, well, you know, there was flooding over here and there's a drought over there. And uh, the message is the world is coming to the end. So you can save the world. You can literally save the entire world, which is about to come to an end if you get this movement. And so you can't, it doesn't work if you sit there and say, well, geez, I don't know, if we completely eliminate fossil fuels before we've got an economic substitute, that's also going to have some tremendously bad consequences for people. It's good. Some people might even starve. Uh, you know, so what are we going to do? Even, even if you believe these catastrophic forecasts, it, it would still be a complex balancing act. But if you admit it as a balancing act, it stops having the force of an apocalyptic religion of salvation. Yeah, and what, something I think about sometimes is that if this were, if there were actually a catastrophic threat, given that it's a catastrophic certainty to do anything resemble, you know, it's, it's certainly catastrophic to do anything resembling these. Someone like McKibben, I think, should publicly be perpetually in tears over this you know, mega Shakespearean tragedy that we were in, where the fuel of life uh, had all of these deadly consequences, but you wouldn't you wouldn't be demonizing the people. You'd recognize it would be as if, you know, antibiotics had a completely fatal flaw, and so you couldn't win at all. Like it would be on that level, but you wouldn't say, "Oh, the people who created antibiotics are evil." You would say, "Wow, they did something really good," and and this is so sad. And then, of course, you would look for options, whether it was uh, geoengineering or nuclear power or everything they precisely don't look for in, in what they do. Well, when you're trying to drum up a, a movement, a political movement, uh, and a political movement uh, that's trying to get the country to do something that most of the people right now don't want to do, you really have to make it seem like um, the entire world is coming to an end and you're fighting absolute evil. Uh, it's interesting because in McKibben's uh, famous article, the one that really kicked off the divestment movement, he says something that I think is pretty pretty honest and pretty revealing. He basically says that since we all do use fossil fuels at every minute of the day, from the moment we get up until the moment we go to sleep, it's been hard to build a political movement because it's a little bit like trying to build a movement against yourself, uh, which is true. And then he says, then he sort of turns around and he pivots and says, well, so that's why we have to say that the oil companies are at fault. They're really the ones who we should blame. And he, he, he almost comes straight out and admits uh, that a more truthful rendering of this is that we all benefit from fossil fuels and we all need them. And in many ways, by destroying fossil fuels, we're destroying ourselves. Uh, he almost says that. And people don't know. Uh, well, McKibben is honest about many things. The one thing McKibben is downplaying, and this is what I talk about in my own writings on the divestment movement, is he, all of his earlier writings which advocate moving back to uh, almost a peasant-like society, a super simple society where we're living uh, off the land, where people are essentially working on farms, even, say, in the suburbs, growing uh, their own food on their lawns, and where we've just stopped being a complex, modern, industrial society. So what McKibben really wants is for all the consequences that you, that you warn, warn about when you talk about what life would be like without fossil fuels, he'd like to see some of those consequences. Obviously, he doesn't want to see mass starvation. He thinks we can get out of that by farming our own food, but it's a pretty, a pretty doubtful thing, and even he admits that it might not work. But McKibben doesn't really talk about all this 
when he talks about divestment, but the reason I think he can he can be undisturbed by the implications of uh, undercutting this industry upon which the modern world depends is because he really doesn't like the modern world and he would like to go back to a pre-modern situation, but he hasn't emphasized that so that the students who follow him don't really understand that what they're advocating uh, would transform their own lives in all of its details and really peel away modernity itself. And this is the truth that has not been spoken by McKibben. Sure, it's in all of his books, but when he talks about divestment, he leaves that out now. He doesn't really explain that. Uh, but, but he did at least say in his famous Rolling Stone article that it's just not working it, because we need fossil fuels so much, it's like building a movement against yourself. So I guess we're going to have to demonize the oil companies. And he pretty much comes out and admits uh, what his political strategy is there. I want to pursue the question of, of motive because I think I think someone like McKibben can be inexplicable to people because and you even said he doesn't want the people to starve and I have a I don't exactly believe that but I I, I, I wrote about this a little bit we did um, I'm not sure if you know about this but we did a little counter education to his uh, rally in DC a couple months ago. Uh, which we called the blackout rally, since they're against all practical forms of energy. And I wrote an article called "Why Why They're Pro Blackout." And I, I just I'm just going to read two sentences to see what you think. Um, when I say that McKibben is pro blackout, I don't mean that he's chomping at the bit to see his lights turned off, his food spoiled, his grocery store raided, etc. But he is still pursuing that outcome because he deeply and blindly hates the industrial civilization that keeps his lights on. And my sense of McKibben is now not quoting anymore that he, I don't believe that he just loves. There's no identity to the world that he's pursuing. It's just kind of this Disney-esque viewpoint of oh, we're just going to live off the land. But it has no more reality than the withering of the way of state when communism. It's much more. I think he really just is clear on what he hates. I don't think there's any kind of love of hunter-gatherer societies and all these things he claims are so. Meaningful. So I'm curious what you think is the the balance between the negative, his hatred of industrial civilization, and his alleged positive, which I tend to think is phony. Well, again, I think there there's truth to both sides of this. I think that McKibben does sincerely believe in this uh, vision of a post-industrial uh, society that goes back to pre-industrial norms, a kind of peasant society, because his his book, particularly Deep Economy, but also Earth, but Deep Economy in particular is just filled with examples of, of the kind of thing that he wants to move us toward. But I agree with you that, that when you get through that book, what you really see is a series of anecdotes. You know, it doesn't really stand up as a systematic and connected, plausible view of what the world he wants could really be. So I agree with you that it's thin, it's insubstantial, it has the same problem that traditional Marxism has. But I think there are enough of these anecdotal examples there. And I do think that, uh, to give him some credit, that he's moved to Vermont and a lot of his examples are built out of the kind of life that um, these back-to-the-land people in Vermont are trying to build there. Now, I don't think that even that could really work out if if our economy collapsed from the absence of fossil fuels. And so I think that ultimately they're being naive. But I think they're very serious in in, in this naivete, and that the, and that a lot of these back to land uh, back to the land types in in Vermont are trying to build this alternative society. And these are the kind of examples he gives. Will it work as a true alternative future if we really undercut? the whole fossil fuel industry? No, I don't think it will work. It will be revealed as an illusion. But it is an illusion that he sincerely holds. That's, that's my take on it. Yeah, I mean, McKibben is... I've dealt with him personally, which gave, gave me a bit of insight into... I don't want to go into really anecdotes about it, but I feel like I understood him a lot more after just dealing with him. And partially, he just has this filter of he does not process anything that goes against his whole metaphysics 
and philosophy. Like he doesn't. If so, if it turns out that using fossil fuels makes the climate safer, which is all the evidence we have, so far, it just he won't won't engage that. It doesn't register. It's just this kind of like almost. It's just this obsession, and thus the following piece of evidence maybe he's never considered. But in the twentieth century, we had the whole phenomenon of so-called central planning, or maybe more accurately, central dictatorship, as a complete as a completely destructive force when it tried to grow an economy. Now, McKibben is in favor of central dictatorship to diminish an economy. So he's not even trying for a good result. I mean, he's trying for a destructive result in terms of more poverty. I mean, imagine how could any human being think after the 20th century, if he's remotely educated, that a kind of central dictatorial approach in the name of a more primitive lifestyle would be anything but mass destruction. And that's why he can only give these stupid little anecdotes, which are all completely parasitical off the fossil fuel producers, he says, are evil. Well, I wish people would actually read uh, McKibben's books. I wish the people who were in the fossil fuel divestment movement would read <clears throat> Deep, Deep Economy. And I think, you know, some, of course, some of them will like it. Some of them will buy this unrealistic image. But I think a lot of people will be turned off. And it's very interesting because on the one hand, the mainstream press uh, tends to idolize McKibben, and they give him, you know, very easy treatment. But when his uh, Deep Economy came out, uh, the New York Times uh, review was kind of antsy about the whole thing. Even the New York Review of Books, if I'm recalling correctly, had a review that was very ambivalent about Deep Economy. Um, the, the, you know, the uh, mainstream liberals like to lionize McKibben, but when they actually read what he wants, it makes them nervous. And I think that would be true of a lot of his followers if they were to actually read what he's looking for. Of course, you know, some people will buy into it and believe that it will work, even though it's just a series of unconvincing anecdotes. But but I think people who understand the consequences of what he's asking for will be made very nervous just, just by reading his uh, books. So going going broader than McKibben, I have a question about education since you have so much expertise in that. Can you give at least part of the arc of how the, the, the broader movement, the environmentalist movement became so pervasive in universities to the point where there's things like an office of sustainability at these schools? I mean, even even I graduated from Duke in 2002, so that was 11 years ago. And since then, it's become noticeably when I go I've gone and spoken at Duke several times and other campuses it's become noticeably more rabid I mean I don't remember people talking even very much about these things in 2002 and now it's all over the place I'm wondering what the how this what the strategy has been and and how it's become so pervasive I mean it's a brilliant strategy the sustainability movement has you know just performed brilliantly and I think the fossil fuel divestment movement is really a product of the success uh, of these sustainability offices so the sustainability movement is deeply ideological uh, it's not really just about uh, building a new building at your university that you know is more energy efficient uh, and yet by claiming that an office needed to be established just to make sure that more energy efficient buildings were constructed on campus this ideological movement was able to get its foot in the door and uh, to use uh, this allegedly necessary uh, path of, of building energy efficient buildings on campus to to create a legitimacy for the much broader and the much more ideological goals of the sustainability movement. And once you had that, it became almost impossible for students to to go against it because this is had official university endorsement. And um, you know, communiques come out. They even have so-called peer-to-peer counseling where they're almost putting, you know, where they're putting social pressure on you to change your habits to, you know, drive less or eat more local food or turn out the lights more often. And so when students rebel, they tend to rebel in a particular way. They tend to rebel not by saying everything you, the older generation, have told me is wrong. They tend to rebel instead by saying, 
you, the older generation, claim to believe X. Well, if you're really serious about X, then you'll have to follow through and take it as seriously as I do. So once universities endorsed this idea of sustainability, it became an easy move to say to students, now you can one-up your own university. You can tell them that only by divesting from fossil fuels in their endowment can they truly uh, be sustainable. And then the student has put the university itself in a totally awkward position. And all of these uh, liberal leaders at the university who don't really want to divest because it will hurt their endowment are embarrassed and don't know what to say because the students are just taking the liberal lessons they've been taught officially by the college itself and turning them back on the college. This is brilliant. Uh, it, it snuck into the university on allegedly non-ideological grounds, and then it appealed to the kind of rebellion that the students feel safest making, and it swept across the campuses, and uh, most Americans really still have no idea. They have no idea how much this sustainability notion has taken root at campuses, how much the young people think the world is coming to an end, and the, the, and the key industry that powers our economy is, is a demon. It's like an alternative universe that's developed in campuses. So you have to take your hats off to the people who push this sustainability movement. They're, they're all wrong, but they were politically brilliant. I think everyone should just rewind that last three minutes because that just sparked so many things in my mind. It's really amazing. And it just, it, it puts together a lot for me, just seeing the mechanisms, because it seems like what you have is this, you've got this movement that's not particularly popular or that doesn't generate any particular interest, sustainability, which is a particular philosophy of stagnation and repetition as the ideal versus progress uh, as the ideal. And yet it's, it's unpopular, or it's not popular at least, but it's also unopposed. And so what they can do, and, and it is sort of sanctioned by the general ideological milieu of the university. So then what they do is they just, by having a few advocates, they create an office and no one will really stand up against it. And someone once told me it was similar for like these ethnic studies things. You know, it's not like that was popular, but they had a couple of advocates and they put it forward. And then the more entrenched they are, the, the less likely anyone is going anyone's going to oppose it. And what that points to is what Julian did at Vassar. I realize now part of the reason it's so powerful is because all he said is basically, hey, let's have, you guys say you're in favor of an open debate. Let's have something that's pro-fossil fuels. And it's, it's kind of hard for them to object to, especially once he fought. And it kind of bursts, it, it bursts the balloons. So I find it fascinating how the other side can get so much hay out of an unpopular and unargued for position, but it also seems to point to some effective ways of fighting it. Well, that's it. And I think a lot of the theme of a lot of what we've been saying here is that there's a kind of bubble out there, you know? It's a very large bubble, <laughs> and maybe there are a lot of bubbles floating around, but it, they, it can be popped. Uh, it's vulnerable because it depends on ignorance, it depends on an absence of debate, and no matter how politicized, the students have become, no matter how they, far they've been pulled away from classic traditions of liberal debate, those things still have a place in their heart. And if you, if you confront them with the way in which they're violating classic traditions of uh, intellectual exchange, which are always at the core of what universities are about, they become ashamed and embarrassed and they, they rethink. Well, um, just just because this this last idea is is really eye opening to me, um, I, I'm just curious. What can you elaborate some on? Just what you think are are good, effective, practical measures we can take? Because my mind is just racing with what can CIP do to maybe help people spearhead uh, initiatives on campus? Because I imagine if you if you had enough, you, you could really at least on a couple. I mean, what if you know? What if you had an office of technological progress or something like that? <laughs> Well, I, I, uh, I hate the idea of m making even more potential politicization. I want the universities to have less. I think the key is once students start, it takes someone like uh, Julian uh, at Vassar. It takes one or two students who are willing to somehow force the issue by inviting someone like yourself or by in, in any way uh, challenging the fundamental uh, um, demonization of fossil fuels to start a fuss. And then folks like myself can step in 
and and publicize what's happening if there is the kind of you know dramatic negative reaction and and the illiberal unfair reaction to quash debate then folks like you and I can step in give publicity come in and give talks and and you know so it just takes it just takes a few people on each campus to begin to burst the bubble and it, it's amazing that uh, that the uh, um, thought uh, control is so strong that that hasn't happened in enough places yet. But once that starts happening, their whole edifice could collapse. And and I think it's great that we're already starting to have just a couple of examples because I think people it can be very demoralizing to see green, 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 sustainable, and it just seems overwhelming. How would you? But it's not realizing that it's coming from a relatively small number of people, and that the level of acceptance of most people is very shallow and would be open to, you know would be open to change so i think it's 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 very heartening to me that to have that ex- i didn't expect anything to come of that thing at Vassar. i just expected it to be a normal speech and then uh i was excited that it would get publicity you know once i heard about the opposition i was excited because i thought people might pay attention and then in a sense these environmentalists did us a real favor uh by by bringing a by creating a story out of it and, and bringing a large number of people from a small campus to give us a little experiment of what's what's possible if if you know this this view which seems so powerful but is i think much less powerful both intellectually and in terms of hearts and minds it's one to give that a challenge that's i just find that very heartening that it can it can work with such just even one small instance I think that's right. I think the Vassar case is a model for what could happen on campuses, and I think if you get more uh, Vassar cases, then uh, you're going to you're going to see <clears throat> a change not only in the divestment debate, but maybe in the general atmosphere on college campuses. I think it is possible that that kind of change could come. All right. Any closing thoughts you want to share with listeners about? Uh, the whole divestment issue, uh, environmentalism on campus, the Vassar situation? I think that's really it. I think that, that the again, the idea is that if we just get some students at a few campuses that are willing to challenge the fundamental uh, premises of the divestment movement, uh, the demonization of fossil fuels, uh, by by their own arguments, by inviting someone like yourself to speak, you know, by contacting me and in whatever way uh, I can be of some help in giving some publicity to conflicts that come after what they're doing. I think that if, if just, it, it only would take a few to create a real argument. That's why the other side it works so hard to prevent voices from the other side, because it really only takes one or two uh, thoughtful voices on the other side of an issue to transform uh, a whole debate. It occurs to me, are there any other people besides you uh, writing on this, uh, on the divestment issue? It seems like you've really taken the lead. I don't know of a lot of people who are writing on the divestment issue per se. And I think that there are many uh, conservatives and libertarians who find it difficult to wade into all of this. I think a lot of people are pushed away just by the complexity of the fact that there's a lot of science involved. In fact, it's not that complex in the end when you really understand what's going on. Uh, it's obviously up to the scientists to finally resolve the debate, but it's not that hard to understand uh, where the lines of force are in the, in the fundamental debate. But I think that the science here keeps a lot of people on all sides, on the left and the right, from jumping into the debate uh, because it means that they have to read an awful lot of stuff to really be able to give an informed opinion. So. It's, and, and then I think there's the phenomenon we talked about before, the people writing off the campuses as just being silly, the whole idea of divestment as being you know, useless and it won't even work even if it passes. But people don't understand that the mind of the young generation of Americans is at stake here as well as our uh, most important industry. And uh, you know, they need to take this more seriously. And so far... Even people who would be disposed to dis- uh, oppose fossil fuel divestment don't realize how much of a problem it is for this country that young people uh, are hearing only one side of this argument. Yeah, and I really, uh, when actually my father pointed me to your articles uh, a couple months ago, and I was really excited to see that, that someone else was interested in this and, in fact, was writing about it more than I have. And I think it's it's just 
it's really valuable for people to take these things seriously and we there's still time with this issue to deal with it in a forceful way if we wait five years it's a much much uh, different story and and I think one has to have this view and, and probably your your background in education is helpful here where it really matters what people believe and the fact that they're not today passing a law that's going to turn my lights out doesn't mean that I don't have to be worried about it. Oh, that's right. And I think uh, there are a lot of conservatives and libertarians who um, who are so turned off by the academy and see the academy as such a lost cause uh, because it's been taken over uh, to such a large extent by ideologues from the left that they just want to wash their hands of the whole thing. Uh, I just don't think we can afford to do that. Yeah, well, I should say just this, my experience and then this conversation, uh, particularly just your explanation of how the ideas have penetrated, uh, definitely are motivating me and, and will motivate other people from CIP to do more on campus because I can I can see now a clearer path toward really making an impact beyond beyond giving speeches but, but doing other strategic things to, uh, to make it clear that there's a debate and let people choose uh, between the sides of the debate. Well, it's great, and I've I've learned from covering you, Alex. I've learned from covering you. I mean, your knowledge of the fossil fuel industry obviously is is impressive. And you know, I'm a relative newcomer to this whole thing. I know about the education end, but you you've helped to teach me about the fossil fuel end. And so, you know, we'll learn from each other. Yeah. Well, I look forward to more work in the future. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Thanks again to Stanley Kurtz for coming on the show. Again, one of my favorite interviews. The thing that I take away is that we can really accomplish a lot by taking the right action on campus, by challenging university officials to allow other positions, in our case, namely the the CIP position, on fossil fuels. And that if we do that, we'll find that the opposition is not nearly as strong as people think, and that, as the Vassar experience shows, we can make a real difference. So I'm, I'm very excited about this. I hope you are too. If you're interested in getting involved, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. And as always, as I like to say, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, also go to alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back with another great subject, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.